every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. and welcome to Conversations with Dead People. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and each week, more or less, uh, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, authors and educators, to discuss two to four episodes of Joss Whedon's critically acclaimed series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and its spin-off series, Angel. I've been a fan of both shows since their original runs, and I've spent many years talking to lots of people about them, but I've somehow never done a full rewatch, so this will be my first time going back through all the way from the beginning. I am familiar with the story and where everything's going, but my guests are likely going to be educating me at least as much as they will be our listeners, probably more so. Uh, and today, joining me is Alexander Lester, a graduate student and teaching associate in the Department of Popular Culture at Bowling Green State University, uh, focusing on the transformative powers of television and the ethics of pop culture. Wow, so that's, uh, that's <laughs> some good stuff. Uh, Alex, thank you so much for joining me. How's it going? It's going, it's going, man. How's it uh, going with you? Um, not bad, not bad. I mean, I, you know, I'm not in a, I'm not in a class focusing on the transformative powers of television and the ethics of pop culture. So, <laughs> sounds like you're doing better than I am. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, I'm in, I'm in Alabama, so you know, there's. I'm in, o- I'm in Ohio, so I, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what's worse. No. <laughs> All right, six of one, half a dozen the other. I got gotcha. you. So, uh, briefly, just give me an idea, sort of how you, how you first discovered Buffy the Vampire Slayer, how you got started with this, and and uh, why in of all the things in the world that you could like focus on as a scholar why did you choose this um so i think i started watching buffy it was season two um while it was during the original run um i was eight at the time i believe so it was yeah, I ended up getting in a lot of trouble because it was like on, I think they had pushed it at that point to nine, if I'm correct. Um, and I was like missing my bedtime. And uh, uh, but yeah, no, I um, I just was really compelled by the storyline. And I think that um, like the Slayer is a metaphor for so many things, um, feeling outcasted, etc. But um, it's the other ultimately, right. and so the Slayer represented um, a variety of things to me, and I, um, I just kind of resonated with it, and I got addicted, and I would watch it weekly. Um, and I didn't have cable at the time, so I'd actually have to go over to a friend's house, <laughs> which was it was a whole thing. Um, and then like I convinced my mom to get cable just so. Uh, we could watch Buffy because, like, <laughs> I guess bunny ears didn't work in our house at the time. Like, wow. going, yeah, we're. Go- I was living in Vermont at the time. It was like in the middle of the woods. I guess I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. So, um, 
Okay. There's, there's, um, now I feel old. I always feel old when I do podcasts, but, um, yeah, you were eight years old when the show started that, uh, yeah, I was, I was, um, I was 27. So, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm impressed that at eight years old, you latched onto the show so much, uh, like, so you're saying it wasn't, uh, like there, there was, you were picking up on like sort of the subtext of the show. You weren't just watching it cause it was like a, a fun funny show with vampires right yeah no um i think i mean i've always been interested in reading the subtext of television and at that age i still was doing it i guess um i never really thought about that till right now (laughs) (laughs) but yeah no i it was a really brilliant show and i think that i mean yes it was fun because she was kicking ass um but ultimately um, it spoke to a deeper meaning. And of course, uh, you had in season two, the complex relationship with Angel, um, right. which I think is gripping in its own um, sense. So if not uh, being pulled in by the action, definitely by the romance or lack thereof. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the forbidden romance. The forbidden abusive romance yeah, that yeah. is Angel and Buffy. Yeah. All right, cool. So... Um... I have to ask really quickly, have you actually written any papers or published anything? I'm not, I couldn't find anything. No, not right now. Um, so I started off, uh, doing a variety of things and, um, right now my research has been basically critiquing Hallmark movies. Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Uh, so, um, I'm, slowly transitioning into drama. Um, I just, my focus has somehow, gotten astray from my original intent because when I applied to my grad program my intent was to write my thesis on Buffy and now it's a wide variety of different things so um it's my it's still in my research area I just haven't pushed out anything yet so okay all right well fingers crossed you'll be submitting to the the weed and studies association any day now right right yes okay cool (laughs) All right, so um, I need to get the dreaded spoiler warning out of the way uh, for listeners. Conversations with Dead People is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring uh, the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and probably lots of them. So I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Series all the way through at least once that you press pause on this podcast now and go do that. Um, Obviously, you're going to get Uh, so much more out of these discussions if you've actually seen the shows that we're discussing. So please go and watch. Uh, We'll wait. Okay. And now that everybody has gone and caught up on the entire, on both series and they're ready to listen, uh, Alexander, if you're ready, let's go to work. For sure. Yeah. Sweet. So tonight we're going to be talking about just two episodes this time. uh, 109, the puppet show and 110 nightmares. And uh, I, I was telling Alex uh, off mic before we started recording, I, I was talking about how um, season one of Buffy, as most season, you know, most the first season of most television shows, is still sort of finding its footing. This is where they kind of work out what the show is going to be, who the characters are, that kind of stuff. And so it's, it, you know, doing this podcast, it's been a little awkward to talk about some of the depth that eventually this series is going to have. Season one it's there, but it's not quite as apparent. It's not, the depth isn't quite as deep, I think, as it's going to get. So 
Uh, and I'm having, I'm running into the same thing with this podcast itself. Uh, this is the first season of Conversations with Dead People. So I'm still kind of finding my footing and figuring out how best this show works. Um, so uh, that's my, you know, that's my spoiler warning that this may be awkward. I don't know. I, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what we can do with these two episodes. Um, also off mic, Alex, I had warned you that I have not revisited these two episodes um like this is my first revisit of these episodes in quite a while so my memory of these two was that they were uh they were two more of sort of the throwaway kind of monster of the week episodes um i'm not entirely sure that that's true now that i have rewatched them and i've sort of taken all my notes uh these as has kind of been the theme of my rewatch of this season one there's a lot more here than perhaps i was remembering would you agree? Yeah, no, definitely. I think that um, the writers definitely set up a lot of things, and they seemed throwaway, but um, no, it definitely laid out um, a lot of what we come to expect in the mythology. Um, not just the mythology, but just how Buffy and friends... Uh, navigate their lives in the on the hellmouth. Yeah. Um the puppet show in particular <laughs> again <laughs> one, so this was written by uh Dean Batali and Rob Des Hotel who had previously written I I I'm going to have to flip through here really quick to see but they have written previous episodes uh, so far in this season. And uh it's also directed by Ellen S Pressman which I believe I, I should do a quick check. Oh, they had previously written uh, never kill a boy on the first date. Um, but I believe one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that was another one where I didn't think it was going to be that good. And there was so much more there, but I'm pretty sure that Ellen S. Pressman is the first female director that the series has uh, flipping back through here really quickly through my notes. That appears to be the case. And there's actually quite a bit in this episode uh there's much more going on in the puppet show than uh that i remembered so um what was what's your take on this you said this is the first time you'd gone back to it for a while too right yeah no it was um so i actually totally forgot this is where snyder was reintroduced um right er, introduced sorry um and how uh immediately how um they set his the character's tone like in his first line he talks about how basically Flutie was eaten um yes. and just like and it's within less than like five lines of dialogue and you're like oh I, we already hate him um but it's such a contrast to Flutie I know and I love Flutie yeah. and I, I while rewatching, like because I watched the whole season I um I was like, damn, they really like, come on, man, like bring back Flutie. Um, <laughs> like, they bring back everybody else from the dead. Uh, no. Um, yeah, I think that um, there was a variety of things. Uh, so we have Sid, the puppet, uh, or he's technically, is he a puppet? He's a puppet. Um, well, I mean, yeah, he's a puppet. He's a dummy. He's, I, I don't know. I mean, the show is called, the episode's called The Puppet Show, so. I right, think I exactly. referred to it as the puppet master earlier, which was a, a major mistake on my part. That is a really cheesy 80s, uh, I think it's Full Moon Entertainment film. 
Oh yeah, they were really bad actually. And there's like ten of them. Yeah, um, they went on forever. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, so you had like the first um, really uh, demon hunter that wasn't uh, a slayer um, or another vampire. Um, <laughs> so you have the uh, the first human demon hunter um, that is cursed into a puppet, um, which definitely. Sp- speaks to the future of the universe that there are, I mean, you guess you have Willow and Xander, um, but I don't consider them demon hunters until later on. And even then, I don't think they would ever embrace that title. Right. Although it is there, there was a sort of throwaway line in this episode where when, when they first bump into Snyder and he, he says something about you left campus yesterday. um, They sort of, let slip that uh, oh well we were just fighting a demon we just left school so we could fight a demon or whatever um oh yeah they did didn't they so and like that you know that's the first as far as i know that's the first reference the show makes to them like continuing the fight uh off camera (laughs) where you know in something that's not covered in an episode but yeah no and it's also the first time i think that well depending on because they've always been the helpers and not necessarily the um, demon fighters. So that's interesting that they're like, well, we all went and fought a demon. Because right. yeah. um, usually, specifically in this season, Buffy is constantly putting them in the passenger seat and being like, you can't fight. Right. Um, and uh, you don't really see them fight until the Prophecy Girl, right? Um, episode, the season finale, um, where they like actually kind of i mean i guess yeah i mean xander xander guillotines a demon in this episode true yeah <laughs> but i get uh, what you're saying i get your point yeah the uh their active roles up to this point have kind of been uh accidental like buffy right. really would prefer that they just uh stay in the library no true and even the guillotine thing that was in a sense, um, an accessory thing. He's, you know, jumps to stop it while Buffy's doing the fighting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I, it's interesting because the demon hunter, um, mentality hasn't been really set. So, um, I, I want to, so you mentioned Sid, obviously, um, he's going to be, he's going to be my focus talking about this episode because I am absolutely (laughs) fascinated by Sid. Uh, I feel like this episode set up um, what potentially could have been a truly interesting character. So he he had been a human hunter in the 30s, a, a demon hunter in the 30s on the trail of a brotherhood of seven demons. Uh, he had a romance with a previous slayer, which obviously we're going to have to talk about that here in a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he was cursed into the body of a ventriloquist dummy. I mean, that right there, that is a spinoff series. Exactly. No. And while I was watching it, uh, and like the last scene where he, I guess, moves on to the next realm, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just like, what? This could have been awesome. He could have been like their little companion that runs around and hides in small places. And like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like he could have done a lot. Like, <laughs> I know it's a, it's a shame. Um, uh, Elizabeth Rambo, a guest on a previous episode, was talking about. Uh, she stressed the fact that they, many of the cast and crews, the creators of this show, 
have gone on record to say as they were doing this first season, um, they pretty much thought this was it. Like they obviously they hoped for more, but they had to assume that these 12 episodes were all they were going to get. And so there's a lot of sort of like throwing really cool ideas in there without necessarily anticipating that they could have six more seasons beyond this to flesh those out. So I feel like if they had been a little more confident that the show was going to last longer, um, you know, they might not necessarily have dispatched <laughs> Sid as quickly as they did. But in any yeah. case, as you, as you said, they bring all sorts of characters back. I mean, I, I can easily imagine any number of scenarios where Sid could have come back. In fact, as I was sort of researching, I, does anyone but me remember the uh was it xbox i think it was xbox it was the first generation of xbox um there were the video games the buffy video games i do remember them i didn't play them but i remember that i think it was chaos bleeds maybe i can't remember i think that was the first one but apparently i played the game years and years ago when it first came out but apparently sid the dummy came back in the game so that's non-canon that doesn't that doesn't really count i guess but still Uh I kind of want it to count, though. I know, I know. Because <laughs> like, let's bring back Sid. Let's like Sid, bring him we, back for the comics. <laughs> we need. Oh Lord, man, the comics are a whole other discussion. But yeah, right. I feel like uh, we've already come up with uh, two new like T-shirts. I want a, a Flutie lives and a Save Sid <laughs> right. T-shirt or something. But um, yeah, no, Sid is really interesting and. Um, it's the first time I think you, I want to say you really feel a loss of the team, even though he's like only there for like, he's not even a part of the team for half the episode, but you already kind of feel like they bonded that, especially the, where she's up on the, um, catwalk and they're talking, um, and you're just like, oh, okay. Like, um, he's part of them. Like he gets it. And it was, I think, the first time you had somebody that got what she was going through. And I think that's why he's, he left such an impression on me. And I want him back, if you will. Um, because, yeah, no, it was just. It's a... Yeah, even just, it, there's so much lost potential here. It, it almost, like, I'm shedding a tear right now. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he almost takes a leadership role just in the very brief time that he gets to sort of be part of the group. Because he's. In fact, Giles even says it's so nice to have somebody else explaining all this for a change. And like Sid sends Giles off and basically not orders, doesn't give him orders, but, you know, sends Giles off with a mission. And I don't know, it was it was a an interesting uh, sort of change to the group dynamic. And at the very least, it would have been nice for Buffy, Buffy to have uh, someone with field experience since Giles obviously doesn't have field experience. Yeah, no, and I think that that's actually kind of, um, it's interesting because I feel like that could be a precursor to uh, her decisions to face the master in Prophecy Girl because you have him willing to die and be free um, just to kill this last demon, and um, you realize, I think this is the first time like she realizes that maybe it's not the first time she realizes it, but it seems like the first time where she's like, you see a demon hunter and the cost of what that means. Yeah. And we, you know, you got to see that going on for the next six seasons afterwards. But um, I feel like this is the first time you realize like 
there is no good end to this. And I think there's an episode in Angel where they're talking about um, basically the humans. Um, in It's like season five. And uh, basically it's like the humans are all going to die, basically. Uh, they're not meant to be in this fight. Um, yeah. And I think that was kind of like a precursor to that because it definitely I feel like was a shift in um or at least it can be read as a shift going backwards I don't know if it was really that bright at the time or like that yeah there was much that uh there is uh that much intention behind it but I definitely um see that being a correlation between maybe how she decided to go ahead and um do those actions with the master because ultimately it's her accepting her destiny um so yeah and uh i mean there's even i i have not yet revisited uh uh prophecy girl i haven't rewatched that yet so i think you're even a little bit fresher on that than i am but if i remember correctly there's is is prophecy girl when we get the whole i don't want to die i'm a 16 year old girl i don't want to die yeah that monologue that yeah. is quite memorable yeah okay so yeah, I mean, this is not that far removed from Prophecy Girl. This is just like three episodes before, yeah, two and a half episodes away. So, um, yeah, they're definitely sort of setting up the the emotion that she's going to be going through. Yeah, no, and I think that um, just in general, uh, like, what does it actually mean to be a like a demon hunter, vampire slayer in this world? Like, it ends horribly um you know he talks about i think it was like he's like the family or is all dead i believe that was one of the lines um like that he has nothing besides demon hunting um which is kind of a precursor to what it means to be a slayer for all the other slayers that have existed right um, so i don't know i find it uh, there's a lot there man bring back sid um and so at this point in the series, they haven't really put a lot of, uh, they haven't really shined a spotlight too much on the notion that there are slayers before Buffy. I mean, the whole, the whole premise of the series is that, uh, in every generation there is a chosen one. And so I don't think they've hidden the fact that obviously there have been slayers before Buffy, but this is the first time where they like specifically call out a previous slayer, a Korean uh, girl from the thirties that Sid knew back when he was a human. Um, and, and that's it. That just kind of hangs there. Uh, but that does put the, um, it does place the first tiny little pin flag in our map of slayers that us, uh, obsessive fans are going to be putting together over the years. So like now, if, if, if you're watching along at home, now is when you mark down the first little information. Oh, in the thirties, the Slayer was a Korean girl, an um, unidentified Korean girl. <laughs> right. Right. And I, I honestly can't remember. I know that the series going forward, it, it fills in some of the gaps, not a ton. Uh, but certainly in the later seasons, like specifically, I think season seven is when they really start to kind of uh, show us in, in more detail what slayers in the past had been like, or actually no, maybe next season is when we start getting that stuff. Oh, I'm trying to think cause I haven't revisited season two yet. Okay. Um, well, I, yeah, I, I know that there are certain chunks of sort of the slayer history that get filled in as we go, but, but not a lot. And I can't remember if, 
any more detail has ever been given. Like, I, I don't know if this poor Korean slayer is just... There, there isn't. Okay, it's so just, so she it's, just it's sits in the void it. as the the Korean slayer from the 30s, and that's all we ever know, huh? That's all we ever know of her. Okay. Um, because I was, like, online, I was like, wait, I don't remember this ever, you know, and there's no information on her, so... All right, well... Anyways, it's the first hint, not the first, it's one of the first hints at a, a much larger world that the series is eventually... Uh, going to work towards filling, but um, yeah, another story that I would love to read. So I, I said the comics are an entirely different story. I don't know what your feelings are on the comics. I couldn't make it past season eight. I couldn't make it past the first season of the comics. I'm not really a fan of what's gone on in the comics. Yeah, no, I think that that's actually, no, I'm not. I, I, I will, I'll be honest. I read the synopsis because I just, I want to know what's what they're doing with it, but yeah. at the same time, I don't want to like first off invest in them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Comics are expensive. Yes. Um, and then also, uh, I just I can't really get behind it. I mean, I just feel like, especially like season eight, like the world goes to crap, and then you're just like, what the hell? Um, <laughs> I I I mean, I know they are technically kind of canon. I don't know. I guess they're considered canon. I, I think they're official canon. Uh, yeah. Which is which is why, you know, in large measure, I tend to just think that uh, the series finale of Angel is kind of where, for me, the whole story ends. I don't, I don't, I try not to think about. I do like that they bring in the um, old ones uh, and expand on the powers that be in the mm -hmm. comic universe because that is, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, they um, talk about like the old ones in the first episode when he's giving the monologue to um, Willow and. Uh, Xander when like they finally are like getting ready to go find Jesse. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or it might've been uh, post Jesse. Uh, so there is like that layout um, and you, obviously they build on what the um, originals are and you know, the powers that be in that universe. And, but I feel like it's so, I mean, if you aren't like a hardcore fan of Buffy, there's no way to follow the comics. Yeah, I mean, even if you are a hardcore fan, I feel like some of that. So I, I also keep sort of half tabs maybe on what's going on. I'm just, I'm a big comics reader and I have been pretty much my whole life. So I, I have just this peripheral knowledge basically of what's going on. And, and uh, I've also done just a little bit of research on some of these characters like, uh, uh, not Teacher's Pet, which... Um, I was talking previously about the character of Amy and how that character survives. She has quite a journey ahead of her and she survives all the way through the series and even into the comics. And so I was just researching that character. And I know that in the comics, even crazier crap <laughs> happens to that character. Like the comics really go uh, just psychedelic, I think, but Right, exactly. And I mean, bringing Warren back, I was just like, okay, we're, we're yeah. getting like, just the first, like, I think that's like the first, like, five comics of season eight. I'm just like, okay, yeah, yeah. Anyways, I, I didn't mean to send us off on a comic spiral. I was just gonna say it's ironic that, uh, you know, I'm not especially a fan of the comics, but uh, I do 
sort of dream of a world where we have official tie-in novels that tell us, you know, I, like I want a series of Sid books and I, I want a series of, of uh, canon stories about previous Slayers, which I know they've done a little bit of that stuff, but. They haven't done enough, though. Not I feel enough. like they, they could really, like, I mean, I don't know why uh, Joss hasn't done that. Like, in all honesty, that's a moneymaker. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, just write a whole bunch of Slayer books and <laughs> make them different characters, create a whole bunch of worlds, like. Absolutely. I mean, I guess that's what J.K. Rowling does with her Pottermore, so. <laughs> I mean, she's making money on that. Right? <laughs> yeah. She's doing all right for herself. She's doing all right. Um, so we, we mentioned Snyder a little bit. I, I particularly love Snyder. Okay, so most people, at the, particularly at the time, 97, when the show was airing, I think most people recognized um, Armin Shimmerman, the actor that plays Snyder, as Quark from Deep Space Nine, from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. But to me, he was and always will be Pascal from Beauty and the Beast. Um, (laughs) So not only was it sort of jarring in a good way to go from poor, sweet, (laughs) well-intentioned Principal Flutie to um, our Fuhrer, uh, Principal Snyder, (laughs) but also going from Pascal, who I remember as being very, very different from Snyder. I don't know. It was it was a shock to see Armin Shimmerman for me at least, um, as this very gruff and uh, a school principal whose whole, like, modus operandi is, oh, children, I hate them, or whatever it is that he says. Um, yeah, no, he's an interesting character. I mean, he's so type A that you're like, he just wants control over everything. And, I mean, I don't know. I think that's, it's, yes, he's Bitter. I think he's just bitter about his life. He's like he represents every trope about like people in like K through twelve education that like yeah. they they hate everything that they have to deal with. And I think it's funny because there's that comparison between Giles at the it, when you first see that like the episode starts, he's sitting there and he's just like, what the hell? Like, why uh, do I have to listen? Like, watch all these horrible people sing Cordelia singing the Whitney Houston song and. Uh, <laughs> like, He's like, my life sucks. And then it's funny because, you know, you have Willow and um, Xander and Buffy, like, basically making fun of him. And uh, Snyder's like, nope, you guys have to do it, too. And they're like, fuck. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, I don't know. I think it was interesting because it is the it definitely brings up the angst of being an educator. That's true. That's true. And to be fair, I guess, uh, well, first of all, I think going forward, we discover, I can't remember when, but I, I'm almost positive. I remember that Snyder is somewhat aware of some of the crap that goes on. Oh, I mean, you have to be like, well, it... <laughs> I mean, you'd think you do, but it seems like nobody in Sunnydale is aware of what's going on. But I feel like at some point, maybe in next season, it's revealed that Snyder is aware of the Hellmouth, or he knows that there is weird stuff that goes on. Yeah, no, I think it definitely is, especially when you... My thing is with Snyder is, and I don't know if this was ever kind of clearly, like, exposed, but he was aware, and then, like, he purposely went after Buffy. And I don't know if he just wasn't actually aware of what, like, was good and bad on the Hellmouth, (laughs) but, like, like, specifically in, like, the you know, the becoming the season finale of season two, like he literally sends the cops after her. Like, yeah. 
<laughs> so he's, like he's he's the uh J. Jonah Jameson of Sunnydale. Pretty much, yeah. He he has <laughs> some weird thing against uh the Slayer, like Jonah J. Jonah does for Spider Man. I guess, yeah. It doesn't it really doesn't make sense though. Um but yeah, maybe I'm missing something. I have to rewatch. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll we'll uh we'll pay attention to his progress as we go. But uh um I also think it's beautiful that uh the timing of his introduction because he's perfectly set up in this episode to be a red herring. Um like he's almost so perfect a red herring for like once you kind of move past one of the things this episode does that I love so much is that it it makes the audience feel smart, smarter than the characters, uh, because we obviously know that the dummy is the killer. We obviously, we expect this, even though at this point, Joss has already demonstrated that he's going to be, you know, uh, subverting expectations and twisting all these tropes and, and uh, cliches and everything. Still, we watch a a horror themed show that features a a talking ventriloquist dummy. And obviously that's the bad guy. Why do our heroes not see this? Why is Xander being so dumb and assuming that this, this, uh, you know, wooden puppet can't come to life. And why is Willow thinking the puppet is cute? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So we're like, you idiots. It's the dummy. Of course it is. And then, you know, they pull the rug out from under us and no, it's not the dummy. The dummy is one of the good guys. Um, so especially after that twist, um, it has to be, it has to be Snyder. Like he's a brand new character that's introduced at the same time that the, these horrible murders start. He is so sinister, especially in that scene where, uh, um, Giles is like, sees him backstage or whatever, just in the shadows kind of backlit. And then, and then he sneaks away or whatever. I don't know. There's, I loved the fact that it was so easy to assume that, the newly introduced principal was going to be the, the monster of the week. Yeah. And also um, even when Buffy goes searching um, and he's like in the dressing room, which was creepy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That was, I was like, why, why are you in the dressing room? <laughs> like um, <laughs> I think it was just technically supposed to be backstage, but it looked like a dressing room. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um yeah, no, I, that's, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, yeah, he, he kind of, he kind of corners her or whatever and says, you shouldn't be down here, like in the dark by yourself or whatever, which is not, that's not something you say, dude, just <laughs> what back off a little bit. And then Buffy's like, oh, I can take care of myself. Um, <laughs> and he's like, okay, bye. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. And then she gets attacked. So yeah, no, uh, that is interesting. That's actually, um, kind of entertaining now that I think about it. It's also great because again, I don't remember exactly how, like, I I don't remember at what point we as viewers come to accept Snyder. I mean, maybe we don't. I, I honestly don't remember if there's ever a point where we're like, Oh, Snyder, he's okay. But I know that introducing him this way, even though he doesn't turn out to be the bad guy in this episode, unless you consider it villainous that he makes them put on that play at the end of the episode, which maybe that qualifies. Yeah. <laughs> um, but even though he turns out to not be the monster of the week, there's, he's still kind of sinister. There's still something off about him. So even going forward into future episodes, there's still a, a light of suspicion cast on Snyder, which I think is great. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and he's also kind of comic relief, right? Like yeah, yeah. you're just, 
um, I mean, it's more, I think the reason why we get, I don't think we actually ever accept him. Maybe some people do, but I think it's like exposure therapy. (laughs) (laughs) He's just that coworker you have to deal with. So he's like there on the screen and you're like, you know, he's going to say his like come up at line and you're just like, okay. Um, like, and then he goes away, but then like, yeah, I, I I don't know. I think we just get used to him. I don't like nobody particularly likes him. I wonder if there's a Snyder fan base out there. There must be. There's a fan base for everything. I'm sure there's. I'm so. I'm sure there are chat rooms dedicated to Principal Snyder out there somewhere. Trying to like justify his actions. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> They're trying to view the entire story through his eyes. He's actually the the hero of the story. I mean, it happened in Superstar. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good point. Good point. Everybody <laughs> is the hero of their own story, even Snyder. Yeah. Um. I, so I thought it was interesting i don't know if this means anything but i thought it was interesting that this uh is the second of three episodes in a row um uh so last week i talked about i robot Eugene, and then uh now this one and the following episode nightmares uh that reference nazis in some way in i robot Eugene, there were all kinds of hitler or nazi or holocaust um mentions that were either overt or sort of subtle allusions oh yeah right like it was it was super weird and going on nightmares like it's just literally swastikas like we have yeah and the next one there's swastikas and and xander even says oh spiders aren't that creepy now if there were nazis crawling all over my face that would be a nightmare that's a weird thing to say (laughs) yeah like um yeah that's I, i don't even know like it, it was, there was, it's three episodes back to back of imagery. And I didn't see that in um, the episode it's after that. So uh, out of, out of mind, out of sight. Is that the next one? Yes, I believe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's well, no, but then you have technically Marcy going into the assassination training. So maybe like it's a comparison of America. No, I don't know. That's uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's a precursor to the alt-right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they predicted it yeah yeah <laughs> i mean anything's possible <laughs> yeah so i don't know i don't know if that was just, if there was something like in the news at the time that these episodes were being written or i, I don't know i don't know if it means anything i just thought it was interesting that at least three because yeah I, I can't remember if we get more in the next couple of episodes but at least three episodes in a row that feature nazis one way or another yeah kind of i mean almost trite in the 90s and now here we are in 2018 and it's not quite as funny anymore but right exactly i was re-watching it and i was like oh like, yeah <laughs> yeah right i was like is this a simpsons thing where they're predicting crap um <laughs> yeah um so uh, another thing i'll i'll mention before we sort of transition into the next episode is that i thought it was Interesting that Xander, at Xander's suggestion, Giles um, uses Cordelia's fear of having a bad hair day to get rid of her, like to make her go away and quit bugging him. Oh, yeah. And in the very next episode, her nightmare is her having a bad hair day. Right, exactly. That is, (laughs) that's so sad that that's her life. I know. (laughs) At least she grows, I mean, over time. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but, um, she never really has a bad hair day after that. So 
<laughs> I don't know. There, I remember. Uh, I remember she gets a haircut in when in one of the later seasons of Angel. I don't remember. I feel like she gets a haircut and it. She was a does, joke for a while. and it's it was a joke yeah, yeah. It, it it's quite short and just I don't know. I mean, it works for her, but <laughs> she she has her uh, her felicity moment, I guess. <laughs> I was just gonna say that. Yeah. I mean, everybody had to. It was the nineties, right? Um, and two thousands, I think, for that one. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> so let's see what else was going on well this is i think it's one of only two episodes in the series um that where the closing credits do not use the theme music like the nerf herder theme music Mm. i think once more with feeling in season six um uses music from the episode uh, over the closing credits. And then this one doesn't even have music over the closing credits. It's just, uh, it's the horrible uh, Oedipus play that the kids are putting on. Right. And there was something about um, like the network. They didn't want that. Um, so it was only in the original airing that oh, yeah? uh, did it. And then on the DVD release. Yeah. Um, so be- after the first airing in 97, um, I believe, uh, that they went ahead and I think they did just the black credits with um, the theme. Um, But yeah, so it wasn't till the DVD releases that we got um, the Oedipus scene in there. And I know that there were some issues from the network. I was reading up on it and it was uh, the network just not um, wanting that. And I think it was because of it was Oedipus. So like, <laughs> I mean, they were still trying to be a wholesome network back then. They had seventh heaven on there and everything. That um, is, uh, that's fascinating because I, um, <laughs> I am in no way, shape or form a prude about any of this stuff, but I thought it was a little bit surprising. Some of the stuff that they get away with in this episode in particular jokes about, you know, once you go wood, it's never as good or something like that. And, and, just uh, Sid in general, every line out of Sid's we, mouth. Yeah, yeah. But then, like, I, I don't know. Like, he's he's all suggestive with Buffy, and she just kind of smiles it off or whatever. And, and, like, she refers to him as a horny puppet, which, I, get, I mean, I don't know. That, none of that is necessarily, quote-unquote, dirty. But I, I was just a little bit surprised that a show from 97 was, yeah. was as explicit, I guess, as that was. No, that's true. And um, we don't really have, I I don't think up till this point that they really kind of, maybe they did do, they had sexual innuendos, but I don't think it was so explicit. I think this one was pretty um, straightforward. We did have the rape scene. Yeah, we did have the attempted rape scene, but. Which I also was like, when I was rewatching that, I was like, um, I really kind of just omitted this from my memory. And I'm exactly. like, I like that they also, the characters omit from their memory. Cause I'm like, really like, it's really disturbing actually. Yes. <laughs> well, think about yeah, that yeah. is, that is a thing that, uh, Elizabeth and I uh, spoke about on the episode where we covered that is that, um, you know, it, it's, it, it's worth discussing the fact that all of us, the characters and fans apparently have completely blacked out that Xander attempted to rape Buffy at one point. Um, and yet Spike gets, uh, you know, burned on the cross literally for, for the same thing, you know, six seasons later, but anyways. Right, exactly. And I think, uh, that also, um, 
Yeah, no, that that's actually really interesting. He literally gets, yeah. Um, yeah, this, I mean, this early in the series, it's almost played off as a joke, so. Which is, yeah, really disturbing, I think, but at yeah. the same time, um, yeah, it is also a product of its time. <laughs> like, as true. horrible as that is it's to true. say, like, yeah. it's the 90s, yeah. And the series hadn't, uh, I you know, hadn't worked itself up to that level of discourse yet. Like I don't, I don't think they were prepared in season one to, to deal with uh, the subject of sexual assault quite as well as they were prepared in season six. If, I mean, it's arguable. It is arguable if they were prepared in season six to deal with that, but eh. <laughs> yeah. they, they were, they were more prepared uh, than they were in season one. Um, however, uh, ironic, so let's move on. Unless there's anything else, let's move on to nightmares because it's ironic. I just I just said that you know they they were maybe not prepared to deal with uh, a real life subject like sexual assault uh, because in the next episode we deal with we in air quotes deal with um, the issue of child abuse. Right, and rewatching it, I was like, this is heavy. Mm-hmm. Like where like this is the first time I think I was um, kind of. Well, it's the first time we have a real person that is the villain, and, um, like, because there hasn't been, I mean, you have had witches, and but you haven't had a person as the villain, and, I mean, the fact that uh, Billy's astral form creates, uh, like, the nightmare man, I think he was the, the, the ugly man, ugly man, the ugly man, yes, um, you have the ugly man, and the ugly man is a manifestation of his coach. So, I mean, I don't know. It's interesting because really the villain is a human um, and it's just Billy's nightmare manifest. Um, Yeah, no, it's heavy. And I think that we, I don't know. I think it's interesting because it does feel like the episode kind of feels out of place Mm -hmm. in the season. Do you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't feel like, because it's the first time we really have like a human villain. I mean, yes, there's mystical circumstances, but like, yeah, it's just, um, no, I mean, I, I actually hadn't even thought of it in those terms before. Uh, there, there are the, the mystical hellmouth version of, of, uh, like dangers to face in this episode. There's the, the, the ugly man and all that, but you're right. When it, when all is said and done, once all that is dealt with, the the actual crime, the like the actual uh, you know case of the week or whatever was uh, a a twelve year old boy being beaten into a coma by his his perfectly normal little league coach. Oh, and I think that was also a thing was like the guy was so average, mm-hmm. like the actor that played him was so average. It wasn't like there was nothing menacing about him. He was the guy that everybody's little league team has. Mm -hmm. So I think that also kind of um, made that hit home, I think more. It definitely, um, it was also like, yeah, no, I just, oh, yeah, it's, (laughs) it's, it's the first time I felt uh, the weightiness that the show becomes known for Uh because the show is really smart with, um, giving us like things that will still like make us cry or like tear up because we're just like, that was so heavy and we don't know how to deal with all this emotion. But like going back and watching it, I was like, 
damn, they went there. Yeah, and and uh, there's a there is a ton of heavy stuff that comes out of this episode, but it, it's it's odd that that really technically that's not one of them. Like we could be having a conversation about the the fact that it's just a regular guy that beat this kid into a coma. That's pretty gruesome. That's pretty dark. Also the fact that like his, the the nightmare manifestation of him had a club arm and and I was trying to figure out why that, you know, I mean, you know, why does why does Billy envision the ugly man as having a club arm and I was so in my head I thought what that meant is that his little league coach beat him with a baseball bat. That's what I got too. Uh, okay. Yeah. That no, is exactly that is terrible. That is terrible. Um, right. And we also see, like, I mean, the girl smoking in the uh, the basement, uh, yeah. like, she, like, legit gets beaten. Yeah. You see a bruised girl. And I think that's, like, also the first time we've had, like, you've had victims and stuff, but you haven't had anything where you're like, oh, this person's in the hospital and beaten almost to death. Like, yeah. I, it's interesting because also, like, the fact that they were able to do it in such a smart way that it it almost like we're able to kind of omit that from our memory if we don't want to remember it because mm-hmm. i mean the fact that it was about the hellmouth and that um while uh billy was in the coma his astral self came to the earth and or to sunnydale whatever um and it was able to bring him with him the nightmares right mm-hmm. so again we use the scapegoat as the hellmouth but really I think they're telling a story about child abuse and um, the reality that it's senseless, I think, because, you know, there's the line about like you met with him after and it was just like completely, it was kind of like, why do these things happen? And I think it was really just Buffy being like, these things happen. Let's talk about it because they're senseless. And I don't think there's any reason to it. And they don't offer any kind of reason to it. And I think that's also the smart part or something smart that they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think part of the reason why this, uh, that aspect of it kind of get, well, I mean, it almost get, I, I read somewhere, uh, one of the reviews or whatever that I was reading, they wrote that off as the Scooby-Doo ending where <laughs> the, the kids are walking away at the end of the episode and they're like, I'm so glad he's in prison where he belongs. <laughs> that just feels like the, Scooby-Doo, I would have gotten away with it, too, if not for you meddling kids. Um, oh, definitely. Yeah, I think that. <laughs> but uh, um, I think the part of the reason why maybe that is glossed over a little bit and why it certainly is heavy, the whole child abuse and this kid is in a coma because his coach beat him with a baseball bat. That's brutal. But there's so much other, um, I mean, no pun intended, but so much other nightmarish stuff that happens in the episode. And this is the first episode where... Um, Sarah Michelle Geller really gets to like genuinely emote outside of uh, either being funny or like frightened. Right. And it's the first time we realize that Buffy has a fear of being turned, um, mm-hmm. which, and it's funny because even in that dialogue where he's uh, uh, Giles is talking to Buffy and he's like, you never told me that that was one of your fears or something like that. And she just like, turns away and doesn't acknowledge it. And it's funny because it's like something that is continuously not acknowledged through the show that this is like one of her greatest fears is being turned. And yet in the comics, because I have to bring those up again, <laughs> there are things called slaypires, which are vampire slayers that were turned into uh, vampires, um, but they retrain 
their superhuman slayer strength and then get vampire strength on top of it. So oh technically, Buffy, technically Buffy was a slay pyre um, <laughs> and for like a brief second, um, but it's, it's super ridiculous. I can't even go there. Um, <laughs> wow. I didn't need to know that about slay pyres. That's terrible. Um, yeah, well, I mean, the the emoting I was referring to is uh, this is like our first on-camera Sarah Michelle Gellar tier where uh, we meet her father. Um, yes. And we get that, like, genuinely, like, heartbreaking scene with, with her, with Nightmare Hank, <laughs> explaining to her that uh, she's the reason for her parents' divorce and that... Uh, you know, I really don't get anything out of these weekends, so let's just stop doing it or whatever. And I thought you'd be, you're not as smart as I thought you were going to be. Yeah. And that I, watching that, I was like, mm-hmm. are, you, are you fucking kidding me? This is like the worst thing. I think that's actually, in all honesty, besides the child abuse, that is maybe the um, most traumatizing. Um, like, as a person that had a single parent, like, ha- like that idea of, having that conversation with your father, um, just like mind blowing. And it's interesting because we also like Hank doesn't really come up much throughout the show. He really is a deadbeat father. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, the fact that this was still so fresh after the divorce, um, which is not something that we like really think about because we don't really trace Joyce's like relationship. Um, but it's still so fresh that, you know, she's still longing for, she's a 16 year old girl that wants her dad in her life. And I think that that scene probably like resonates with a lot of people that didn't have a father figure growing up because I know it definitely resonated with me. Um, And like the horror of, is this um, my fault? You know, that he's not in our lives. Um, Not to get more heavy here, but yeah, I think that is, um, I think that definitely was one. It was kind of a rough scene to watch when I now that I'm thinking about it, because I was like, are you like, this is really harsh. And I know it, like it was obvious that it was Nightmare Hank. But like at the same time, you're like, damn. Yeah. No, even she even she like figured out uh, at one point that this was the nightmare thing. Like she looks over and sees Billy standing over there, but it doesn't it doesn't make it hurt any less. And I feel like the trauma of that scene, the fact that like our, our hero, though the character were theoretically most invested in at this point in the show, uh, having this really terrible experience is the reason why we kind of brush off the, the, uh, child beaten with a baseball bat thing. Like this is, I think is what people remember is the trauma of the episode, not necessarily the whole child abuse thing. Um, yeah, no. And it's interesting because both have like, parental like figures right mm-hmm. like both the whole episode is about um trusted male um, role models mm-hmm. uh so that it's interesting because it seems like whoever was writing this um has some daddy issues no <laughs> <laughs> i think we all have daddy issues we all have daddy issues. Oh, no true uh it just seemed very direct in this episode yeah um, but yeah no i think that was it was a really hard um it's interesting because it was emotional. You're right. When she realizes that it is still a dream, she's still like processing it. And she Mm -hmm. does emote for the first time. I think this was the first time you got to see her um, acting range besides her snarky comments. Yes, exactly. And her over dramatic um, 
fighting sounds that she had during <laughs> season one. Or like when she jumps over things and she's like, oh, and you're like, okay, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so we get a much better sort of look at the concept of the Slayer dreams or whatever, which I know the whole series kind of opened up with that, with her having the the semi-prophetic nightmares. But I feel like the idea that the Slayer has these prophetic dreams um, is crystallized here because we get the first meeting in, in quotes between um, Buffy and the master. And you like, this could be, you could look at this as an example of they just used the actual actors in order to sort of trick the audience into thinking that what, they, what we're watching is real uh, before revealing that it's a dream. And like, you know, maybe in the dream itself, it was more vague or whatever. Maybe Buffy was just dreaming about meeting the master and she doesn't know what the master looks like. But I took this to mean, I took this as, as uh, the, the Slayer prophetic dream ability actually showed her the face of the master that is interesting yeah um it could also be a pre-telling of her death right mm-hmm. oh that's a spoiler we're good with spoilers yeah um, yeah yeah, yeah no. <laughs> like the fact that um she's literally thrown into the ground and her death happens underground and she's killed by the master mm-hmm. um or in this case turned um but it's interesting because that's also prophetic in the sense that she comes back to life um, which triggers, you know, uh, the second Slayer. So we have, um, like, that whole scene of her being thrown into the grave um, and then coming back as a vampire is um, literally her being thrown under, like, being in Earth, like, dying and then coming back. Uh, so it's it's, it's also, it, it's also, like, uh, prophetic of season six like it's also we get to see her claw her way out of her own grave in her nightmares and then that is a thing that actually happens later in the show exactly um and i don't know if that was really uh drawn upon but i think that is definitely an astute observation yeah um let's see um what else have i got here oh we finally get okay no 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 i i i have to point out how how, ironic's probably not the right word but uh thought it was ironic that xander is the class clown of the group and his um his big nightmare is of clowns (laughs) clowns and nazis Uh, but yeah yeah. (laughs) that should have been a nazi clown missed opportunity I actually, I'm wondering if it was a Nazi clown because there was, you know, the swastikas and you had the, cl- no, I think it was just an evil clown. I think it was um, just a clown. <laughs> and I, I do find the, like, it was funny with the candy bars. Like, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> let's just follow our stomach. It was like such a 16 year old guy thing to do. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but the clown was really freaking creepy. I'll be honest. <laughs> You know, I'm not a fan of clowns, so it's, the, the clown thing is so weird. Like, I don't remember when. I, I don't remember when the the cliche of clowns being scary started. I mean, it it must have predated this because, like, Stephen King made right. a whole big deal out of that. But um, for years and years, growing up, I was like, 
people, come on. Like I, I, I rolled my eyes anytime people would say, oh, I'm terrified of clowns. I was like, really? You, you read that in a book once and now it's cool to pretend that you're terrified of clowns. <laughs> clowns are just weird guys in makeup. Uh, so I don't know if it's just over the years I've been worn down by this, by the pervasive idea that clowns are terrifying. But now at almost 50 years old, I'm like, yeah, clowns are terrifying. Clowns are just evil incarnate, aren't they? Well, you know, it's like, I don't even, I'm not terrified of clowns, but they make me really uneasy. Something about, it's like having a dude in like the scream mask, like standing there. Like <laughs> I, I, uh, I actually was at a, the scream Four premiere, um, at one of, at one of my like local theaters and, um, some dude wore the mask and I was like, this literally happened in the second movie. Let's not do this. But like <laughs> clowns. Clowns like represent the same thing to me. It's like not knowing who's behind the mask. Uh -huh. um, so like the more the makeup, the or the creepier the makeup, like the worse. But like if it's like a really pathetic makeup attempt, I'm like I'm okay with you. You're just like a really bad makeup artist, clown person. <laughs> like if I could, like, but it's just distorting of faces. And I think that there's like psychological yeah, yeah. support, like research that supports that. That's why people are freaked out about clowns. Is like the um, distorting of faces. I, I had never thought of that. That is, that's incredible. The whole distorting of faces. Yep. Yeah. Cause and you, masks, you know, masks play an important role in this series at various points. <laughs> so literally. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, it's, it's interesting. Um, yeah. So, uh, as of this episode, we finally like all of our, our core group, uh, stand fully identified with complete names as we finally get the re the reveal of willow's last name oh yeah we do don't we yeah she's wow. the last one who we haven't uh heard the full name or you know at least first and last name for um and i have to say uh even though i just talked about how yeah now it at, I, i'm finally willing to admit that's clowns are scary the fear that i identify with the most in this sort of the nightmare that bothers me the most is um actually willow's fear of being like thrust into a position where you have to present or perform in front of others and you haven't in her in in her example i haven't learned the words um i guess this also kind of applies to buffy having not studied for the big history test um, which is one of those like high school nightmare cliches, but uh, for some reason I felt it much more viscerally uh, in the scene with Willow. I, I have frequent like nightmares of that variety where I'm, and, and I think actually they frequently take me back to high school. I think it literally is the cliche of high school. I think I have recurring nightmares where I'm, I'm like in class and I have no idea what, class i'm in or you know what test we're about to take or whatever um but that's for my I, therapist <laughs> right no, um i think younger me would have been more in line with uh cordelia and then i lost my hair so i'm like <laughs> i always have a bad hair day um i have the same hair day every day um but i think uh to be honest um the attack in the basement freaked me out oh, like yeah. Because it was very um, horror movie-esque. Um, like, I mean, all of the show has a horror... Like, especially this season. There's so many locker room scenes. Like, right. Um, and you have, like, this horror feel. But I think that, like... I don't know. The idea of just getting randomly beaten, like, freaks me out. Um, I do want to ask about that basement scene. Um, 
I agree. That was, that's another, that's, that's the same kind of uh, horrifying as when we start thinking about what actually happened to Billy. But my question is why, so maybe I just didn't understand, but why would the ugly man who, who theoretically is the manifestation of Billy's nightmare, why would he attack Laura in the basement? Like I, I, I didn't understand. Like he's not Laura's nightmare. Shouldn't Laura be the one having a nightmare? Unless Laura's nightmare is just that she's going to get ax murdered in the basement of the school. I don't know. I'm wondering if Laura's nightmare was getting caught. Um, mm. But at the same time, like it doesn't make sense. You're right. Um, and also besides like, I mean, we only see the ugly man a few times throughout the episode. And the other time being while Buffy and Billy are in the, theater um i it doesn't seem like there's a rhyme or reason for that like mm-hmm. i don't really yeah now that i'm thinking about it, i'm like uh why did he attack laura i mean for a, 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 as a plot device he did so that he so she would be able to say yeah he said uh, lucky 19 <laughs> like right it, exactly did we just beat up a girl just for a plot device yeah like, just he, to give us a clue it, but uh yeah, I, I was like, what, what does she have to do with the ugly man? I, I don't, I'm not sure that tracks, but it's a, it's a minor nitpick. You know, we didn't talk about, I don't think Joyce has anything to do with this episode. I don't remember Joyce figuring into nightmares at all, but I forgot to mention when we were talking about uh, Puppet Show, the, the, on previous episodes of this podcast, it's been mentioned that Joyce is, uh, early on, Joyce is pretty difficult to sort of um, sympathize with or whatever. Uh, She's been difficult to like or identify with maybe in the first season so far, at least. And some of that I think is just the, the whole parents just don't understand trope that is, that tends to be common in all of teen drama storytelling or whatever. And I think that's what her character was initially meant for. Right. I don't like in all honesty, like how they've portrayed her. I really don't feel, I mean, she doesn't even find out Buffy's a slayer until this season two finale, like, um, which is like her coming out story, if you will. But like you, how ignorant of a parent do you have to be like, I'm, I'm going there with my attack on Joyce here, but how ignorant do you have to be to like realize your daughter's coming home? Like, as uh, she says in her coming out monologue, like beaten, bloodied, like she's ultimately a single parent that is overworked. And I think she is doing her best, but I do think her attempts at parenting are really bad mm-hmm. um, because she just, I feel like she's trying to figure out how to be a single parent. But at the same time, um, I think that the writers don't necessarily show that's what she's actually doing. Um, I think in Nightmares, we, you know, you realize that she's divorced and you have this conversation because we don't really talk about Buffy's um, father, I don't think, up till that point. Um, so you realize that, okay, so this is the situation really. Um, so you might get, a, I got a little more sympathy there, but you're right. Uh, Joyce is really kind of, cold and hard to dis like you just can't engage with her at this point i mean it's difficult you know as a fan who's watched the whole show before so like obviously we know that the character 
gets better developed as the seasons go forward and we know where the character arc is ultimately ultimately leading so it's a little uncomfortable for me to bag on joyce so much in the first season i try to be sympathetic not only to the fact that it's just the first season of a show and they're still figuring all this out but also they were leaning into the teen drama tropes of you have to have the parent that just doesn't understand what's going on with the teenager that's that's the point of teen drama um but like in these episodes this was the time where I was like particularly when when Joyce didn't either didn't know about the murdered girl the day before the talent show or <laughs> wasn't really concerned about it when she was asking Buffy, you, what's bothering you? Like my thought was, <laughs> well, one of her classmates was just viciously murdered yesterday. That might be what's bothering her. <laughs> right. And I think like it's interesting because every time you see her, she's always like doing something for her gallery. Um but you don't, I don't think Joyce actually softens up until um, post, uh, until like midway through season three. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just like, okay, she's, I feel like she's just there. Um, and I don't think they really do much with her um, mm-hmm. in the way of developing her. I think she's just, you're right. She's a trope. Uh, and yeah, I guess, I guess she's not meant to be like a fully, she's not part of the Scooby gang, so no, and even when she does become aware, she is really just there to be like, "Do you really have to do this?" and then disappears. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, uh, you know, um, I think the only time she really has, even like going up to her death, like you don't really have anything. I besides her fling with Giles and her dealing with Buffy um, leaving town, you don't really have much. Um, Work and the only time she's actually uh, actively um, engaged with one of the like fights, if you will, is when she um, the mask episode with the zombies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there, so, doesn't she also threaten Spike with an axe at one point? I feel like. Yes, she yeah, does. Yeah. yeah, no, but she really does. I mean, besides just. Um, random one-offs they don't really do much with her which is funny because when you do get to the body you felt it like you went there but I I, it's weird because now that I think about it I'm like did she really do anything throughout the show like (laughs) (laughs) which is really bad because I really do like the character but I'm like why do I like this character now Uh, I don't know well that's one of the things I need to rediscover in this rewatch all the way through is what because yes the body um, (laughs) listeners if you did what I what I suggested, and you watched the entire series before listening to this episode, you know what we're talking about here. The body is brutal. The, the body is one of the roughest things, one of the roughest mm. hours of television I've ever had to sit through. And um, there must be a reason for that. I mean, obviously, by that point in the series, we deeply identify with and empathize with these other characters who are now going through this painful situation. So some of it could just be when Buffy cries, we cry or, you know, that kind of thing. Well, but, I think also it's the representation of everybody knows uh, either what it's like to lose a parent or fears it. And yeah, yeah. I think that the, like, the scene where she automatically like throws up afterwards, mm-hmm. I think that like represents um, everybody's fear. Like that's it's universal language. So, I, I mean, I think that that's part of it. But at the same time, it's interesting because Joyce hasn't been given a lot, in my opinion, um, she's been given stuff, but she hasn't been given a lot, um, 
to really like hit us with that. And I think there's, there is, I mean, even though like I, I'm like saying she's a deadbeat parent, she's really not. <laughs> um, she's really not because the thing is like ultimately she does care and she's doing her best. Um, and she has a whole other daughter she has to take care of too. Yeah, but that doesn't exist yet. I, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and like that also like how does that change everything we watch from season one through four? Right. Um, like no, or season one through five technically. Um, so yeah, no. <laughs> oh God, Dawn. <laughs> She's something else. Um, but yeah. <laughs> um, also, does that make Joyce a more lovable parent or more hateable parent? <laughs> I take it you're not a Dawn fan. Um, I can... I, I, yeah, I like her, but I also don't. I, I find her really obnoxious until season seven. Um, That's fair. And I mean, she was supposed to be obnoxious. Right. She's supposed to be a teenager, but... Um, yeah, no, I, I, I just find it like for continuity, I have continuity issues with it. And like, just, <laughs> see, I'm, that's one of my favorite things about it is the, the, the mind scramble of messing with all of this continuity. I love that. And it's like, all I, I don't know. I see, I don't. <laughs> like, I, that's like, fair. <laughs> that's fair. I can't, I, I cannot wait to get to those seasons. Um, so I can, so me and my guests can work through our complicated feelings on the introduction of dawn and what that means for the series as a whole well and my thing is if we didn't have dawn we wouldn't have glory and glory is my favorite villain throughout the whole entire series so i mean and it also like pushes giles's plot forward or character development forward so like i don't hate her because pretty much she gave us glory but at the same time they could have probably introduced glory another way um (laughs) <laughs> oh, poor Don. Poor Don. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I'm sure Michelle's gonna listen to this and be like, I fucking hate him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're so sorry, Michelle. You're a lovely person. Uh okay. Man. Um I I I am impressed that we had that much to talk about with these two episodes. It's it pleases me. So Yeah, I think there's a lot more here than uh meets the eye. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember. Uh, I don't have the list in front of me. Or did I get you to commit to future episodes? Did you sign up for more after this? I did. Becoming part one and two, definitely. Oh, all uh, right. That's right. That's right. You, that's you my even episode. Asked me Those are that, my yeah. episodes. Yeah. I okay. uh, every time I watch it, I cry. So you'll hear me back Excellent. on that. Excellent. Excellent. That's what we want. That's what that's what sells podcasts. Emotion <laughs> like that. So. Um, at, you'll, you'll be back at least for that and possibly for, for other episodes, but, uh, unless there's anything else we had about these, uh, was there anything we, we missed? Anything you want to talk about? I feel like we could talk about this for hours. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think we're good right now. Uh, okay. All right. Excellent. Well, Alex, um, this has been great. Thank you so much for, for, uh, agreeing to join me and, for for reminding me that you will be joining me again so uh until then i always offer my guests an opportunity to um uh, expose themselves to the audience uh do you feel like being stalked by the listeners do you do you want to share how people can find you online yeah you guys can find me on uh twitter at armchair underscore phil um and yeah you can stalk me on twitter okay Um, but don't stalk me anywhere else. <laughs> okay. And be gentle when you're stalking, please. Yeah, no don't, creepy stuff. <laughs> don't get don't get creepy. Come on. Yeah. Uh 
And uh, so that's that. Thank you, everybody at home, for listening. Uh, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com, um, or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, please do me a favor. Uh, write, uh, rate us or write us a review, because um, someone failed to point out to me that there are about a bazillion other Buffy podcasts out there in the world. That's not true. I was just lazy and didn't look it up. But yeah, there are a ton of Buffy podcasts. So uh, if you have any kind words that you want to you know, spread about what we're doing here at conversations with dead people that could really help us stand out from the crowd. I'd appreciate that. Uh, if you have questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything that we've discussed, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at conswithdead, or you can reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash conswithdead. You guessed it. Uh, next week, I'm going to be joined by James South, who's Associate Dean for Faculty, Klingler College of Arts and Sciences at Marquette University, uh, also editor and contributor to Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Philosophy, Fear and Trembling in Sunnydale. So I can't wait for that. Uh, we're going to be discussing episodes 111, Out of Sight, Out of Mind. Uh, we'll be looking for further Nazi references. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the season one finale, um, episode 112, Prophecy Girl. So bring your tissues. Um, until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. A dream is a wish your heart makes when you're fast asleep. In dreams you will lose your heart aches. Whatever you wish for, you keep. Have faith in your dreams and someday. Your